0: The Optimal Life.
1: Hello, Joe. Hello, Nate. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. Um, This is an important one for me. I'm a divorced father um, of three girls. Got divorced about four years ago. And I've seen your line of work. So I was very interested to learn more, to hear more about your path and and the whole system as a whole. So um, let's start with why why did you get into this line of work of representing, I believe, strictly men uh, at this point in your career when it comes to the divorce process? What was your reason?
0: Well, let me first clarify that it's not strictly men, although you're right, 97% of our clients are men and we hold ourselves out as serving men in divorce. Uh, But if if a woman comes to us, we we will represent her uh, as I think the law requires. But uh, but I, I'll give you a little bit of history of how I landed here. Uh, I started out as a hungry general practitioner, um, late '80s, and uh, and so when you're a lawyer at that stage in your career, often you kind of do whatever comes to the door, and it's and it's you know it's a healthy thing. It's a healthy thing professionally to get a lot of diverse experience. So I noticed that over time I was I did focus I should tell you on the Christian community because I had relationships with the Christian community in St Louis and um, and and not others I wasn't originally from this city so I would have expected serving a lot of clients from the Christian community that the last thing I'd be doing was domestic relations um, however I, I found that over time you know my practice became 70 75 percent domestic relations and a lot of guys but but not not grossly disproportionate in guys as a percentage., uh, but I will tell you that uh, that I had some cases early on that really brought home to me in a graphic way what was going on with the system, and how, um, despite all the language about civil rights and fairness, et cetera, and all these and all categories that have been neglected of people which should have gotten attention and thankfully did, but did not include men as far as their role in the family and domestic relations court. So I saw, I I went through a couple of cases that kind of tilted the scale. Um, And uh, one, for example, involved a, a guy who he didn't have a lot of money. He couldn't afford to pay me the sort of money that I, that it would take that I or any good domestic relations lawyer would charge him for protracted, litigation involving regular appeals, uh, et cetera, which, of course, often happens. The nature of the sort of, of mindset that I was describing means that often you're resorting to appellate courts or asking for rehearings because things just didn't go right. Uh, it didn't go as they should. And and this guy didn't have the money. So he was tapped out. But I went ahead and c- continued representing him. We had, I don't know, a couple days of trial maybe three. And, uh, and I, I knew we put on an incredible case. I mean, I knew it was good. And, and uh, the judge ruled in favor of the mother. And I should tell you that from comments that were made in chambers, et cetera, I wasn't surprised when this happened. And I had kind of braced my client for the this possibility, but it still astounded me because I didn't think our case was quite as good as it, it looked, as I realized it was, as I was cross-examining these witnesses. And, uh, and in that context, I was, I was shocked and my client was, you know, obviously, um, you know, uh, upset and, uh, and the, the judge sends the children off, these small children. And we're talking about, I think there were three, maybe four, there were at least three kids and they were all small. They were all under six. And one I think was like two and uh, the, the judge sent them off with this mother who we had already demonstrated was an alcoholic. And I can tell you a week later, guess what? Uh, Division of Family Services was called to this home. They came into the home. A week later, after the judge hearing all this evidence, had awarded custody to mom, uh, DFS is called to the house. They come in, they find children wandering around in the kitchen, pulling stuff out of cabinets, reaching and trying to, 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 to feed themselves because mom is passed out completely in the living room. This during the daytime. Uh, kids hadn't been changed. Nothing. I mean, total neglect. And uh, and the judge still, because I think his pride was involved in it, he wasn't prepared to change his order. So DFS changed it for him. They transfer. They transferred the kids to my client. But that they're not all that horrendous. But you know, in varying degrees along the scale of, of of prejudice regarding dads and their their roles as nurturers. It was there. It was there. So that's the you know you, you don't have to see much of that to decide that you have you know a cause, and so that's what Cordell and Cordell became.
1: Mm. So that was the the tipping point for you. What was it, it? Obviously, was it all centered around custody? Is that what the trial was? Was who was going to have custody of the kids? Did they they couldn't come almost entire shared parenting agreement.
0: Yeah, no, it was almost entirely custody. And and in that day, and now I, I should say that it's become a little more common because of the progress. There has been progress in the last few decades. Do I think it's a level playing field? No, it's definitely not. But it's much better. And at the time, though, it was a it was a win and lose proposition, meaning you either got primary custody or you were reduced to visitation. I mean, those were the two options. The the philosophy at the time was that that it was disruptive to children, divorce, and that they, they should be given to one parent with some visits to the other. And I can tell you what the legislature had in mind, which parent that was, uh, when they issued that order. And it meant that dad's free to work and earn money, which was the perception of his primary role. And if he had the kids all the time, he couldn't bring in the money that he needs to bring in for the mother to nurture the children.
1: And you guys sat there and you showed at trial that this woman was clearly had issues you guys brought the the competency, the issues, the alcohol, those types of things to the forefront and you oh. still couldn't get any kind of custody for your client back at that
0: time no and well no but but let me let me tell you the way one of the problems with domestic relations court and I don't I don't know of a simple solution to this put aside any predispositions that that judges may have regarding gender. The bottom line is that discretion is very, very broad in family courts. Often you have you have guardrails on a judge's discretion in a lot of types of litigation, financial crimes, etc. You have guardrails, but on the subject of who's a better parent, line up ten people and ask them different questions about parenting. You're going to get ten different answers. So I'm being a little bit of devil's advocate uh, by saying that that there's just a whole lot of room for a judge's you know opinion. Now, the the facts that I had what was was that clearly beyond the range of discretion to award custody to the mother under those conditions. Yes, it was. And I think we would have gotten that reversed on appeal assuming assuming that the court of appeals believe the testimony. Remember, the court of appeals on a case can only turn a case over if they believe that they it's a wrong application of the law. Or number two, that it was an abuse of discretion. That means that no reasonable person could possibly have reached the conclusion on the facts that that this court did, this judge did, for example. That's the standard. It's a very high bar. And remember, the, the, a lot of appellate courts have said many times that, look, we defer – to trial courts and to juries regarding their perception of the veracity, meaning the truthfulness of witnesses, the ability to watch the eyes and the face and the hand. That, that's huge. And appellate courts know that. So, so they're very differential on whether you read someone as being truthful or not truthful. So maybe an appellate court could have thought, well, Joe, I know you had these experts on the stand, but I think that the judge, you know, he watched them, he listened to them, he judged their veracity and concluded that it wasn't credible.
1: I just don't understand how, especially back then, any male figure that wanted to have a chance at getting custody of, of his children uh, could do so. It sounds like all the female had to do back then was take you to court, bleed you out in on, on terms of financial. Like you said, your guy, he couldn't afford you guys. You just beat him out financially and uh, the women's going to win. The woman's going to win. She still won, even though he had a great representation in you and your partners.
0: Uh, Yeah, but I don't want to make this sound too bad. I mean, in other words, if you go back to the 90s, I mean, there were victories. I mean, remember, these guys are are they're not evil. These judges, for the most part, I mean, I mean, they're, they're like you and me. And and yet they had prejudices about the roles of parenting that perhaps were a product is a product of our time, our culture, et cetera. It doesn't excuse it. But but similarly, there are guys like you and me back then. And let's assume that we, too, were products of that world. But nonetheless, we would have thought, oh, this is a good dad. He should have custody. There were those cases and, and there were those judges. Um, it, it, would I say that those judges were. Uh, existed in larger numbers in urban areas than rule? Yes, I think so, just as a generalization. The more rule you got, probably the more stereotyped the outcome is going to be.
1: I think it's important that, and I'm not just, it's, it needs to all be the man. I think it's extremely important, and I assume that you agree as well, that there, the mother plays a critical role, and she has her checklist of roles that she typically plays and then the father plays his role. And he has this checklist of roles he typically plays. A child who only has a father is not going to most likely be exposed to a lot of the beauty and the things that a mother is going to bring to that child growing up, and vice versa. Uh, A child that only has a mother is not going to have that strength and that resolve and that calmness or the, the, the masculinity that a father brings. So I think it's critical that that the system looks at both right and that's kind of seems where it's gone over the last it's it's getting better
0: yeah it is getting better but but i think that that sociologists psychologists others who are knowledgeable about parenting and outcomes for children i think now would almost be unanimous in agreeing that that the father is much more important uh, and essential as you and i would say when perhaps their consensus wouldn't have existed 30 years ago, we're now seeing the fruits of a public policy in which there was one parent, the mother present, and the dad not, in larger percentages than our our society has ever seen, and the results of which you know we're witnessing uh, every day, and especially over the last three years. So, so there is a price to be paid in terms of of uh, of these not not only for the children but for our culture at large
1: yeah i I think i saw a stat too that it was either all or the majority of mass shooters have come from a a a one-person household and and almost every single time they did not have a father in their lives i know that's an extreme but Mm -hmm. there's something going on there the father figure is extremely critical why do you think though joe over the last 10 20 years, what what has caused it? And what has caused this shift in mindset and mentality throughout the system?
0: You mean in a favorable direction. Correct. Or less favorable. Okay. Favorable. favorable. So um I mean I think whenever people who are so passionate about civil rights come to the point to where they blush when presented with the neglect of this issue that that they finally have conceded that that yeah you know, it's true that we've given a lot of attention to moms, moms in divorce court. I mean, moms in divorce, moms victims of domestic violence. Mom has mobilized the, a multitude of organizations rich with resources uh, and a good portion of them government organizations uh, whose mission is to protect mom from this abusive environment that they impute to her or that she says that she's a victim of it. And, and it is it is viewed entirely from a one-gender perspective. Uh, yes, there's domestic violence. There's domestic violence on both sides. I mean, we had a case where the guy goes into court and his wife had hit him so hard that she broke this, I mean, it's called a mandibular bone, whatever it is, they, 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 this the bone around socket, your eye. The
1: eye socket, yeah.
0: Yeah, it was a crack in it, and and they don't treat it uh, other than to to watch it, see if any residual damages to nasal areas, et cetera. So we come into court with an order of protection, and I don't. the judge apparently took the position that my client had provoked her. Now imagine this, switching roles. Th- th- this would be on the evening news. So you know what the judge does. His order is, I'll grant the order of protection because he had to, meaning the law said. Obviously, he had been struck, and then the judge didn't question that. Uh, but but the judge went ahead and allowed them to continue living in the home together. In other words, it was this purely token issuance of an order because he had to, but he didn't think this guy was possibly endangered, even though that a blow of this force caused the damage that it did. That's how lightly, frivolously, the court regarded this this uh, application for an order of protection. So, so I think that that what we've seen happen over the, the, the last decades or so is this recognition that that this is a one sided affair, and it's getting embarrassingly so for advocates of civil rights. And when you have guys who are regarded as uh, you, as as this monolithic group of people who are prone to violence and they have to be subdued by courts in domestic relations cases then you end up with with tools and instruments that are abused I could you could get me to talk for you know 30 minutes about orders of protection I mean it's it's probably the most uh, abused legislative tool in domestic relations courts uh, because it's become a means by which one party, not either party, one party really, has available to it this means by which they can gain a powerful edge over their opponent in, in what is, you know, the greatest fight of their life, you know, that's what divorce is. And, and they, they get this powerful tool that, that assures them custody, uh, that assures them exclusive possession of the or custody of the children and possession of the marital home while the case is pending. Attorney fees. Now, the the fact that there are some spillover effects where this guy, if if such an order is issued, may very well lose his profession. I mean, there's a number of professions that if you're found guilty of domestic violence, your career is over. Teaching other things, he can't own firearms again, etc. You know, a, a number of number of consequential uh, effects from from this this tactic. But but it was made available by legislatures. And the requirement for an order of protection, lest anybody think that whenever they hear that a celebrity or someone is guilty of some terrible thing when an order of protection is issued, they need to know that, that while that's possible, that that, that that celebrity or other person is guilty, the threshold for the issuance of the order they should know is simply a perceived risk of imminent violence or imminent harm. Language such as that in the various you know uh, counterparts around the nation that's all that's required so the it, the the pressure to use this opportunity in a fight such as divorce is almost irresistible and so it, it's not a criticism of women men would use it if it were given to them the point is the legislature shouldn't have created and courts should not have continued to entertain or encourage something that is so vulnerable to abuse
1: right and then when the man actually has the opportunity to use that to your point it's uh he he provoked <laughs> he provoked the situation but but you talked about that but i'm i'm curious more so to the fact that the courts have become much more cognizant of the importance that the fathers play in the home and you've seen it over the years that 30 years ago it was probably winner takes all and that was usually 99% of the time women it's gotten more to the middle where they say, hey, listen, there should be shared parenting rights. If both homes are, as long as there's nothing dangerous that the kids are exposed to, why do you believe that the courts have started to shift their mindset over time in favor of the father?
0: I do think that studies support it. And, and some of the studies I was referring to a while ago, uh, relating to the the role of both parents in the home, I think now that's being widely accepted. Um but but I do think, though, that that there was pressure on the part of many guys, organizations and others that that domestic relations courts had to become fairer. And I think the way that they became fair in it, apart from from this, these scientific, stu- these sociology, sociological studies, is that they, they come in with a presumption that now exists in uh, maybe not all states, but a good 45 plus states have the presumption uh, that shared parenting is the way to go and either party who wants to, uh, to avoid that, perhaps they want primary custody, then they bear the burden of proof of establishing that there's a reason for that. And incidentally, an order of protection can be such a reason and would be such a reason.
1: Yeah, it's just interesting for me to see the progression. I hear stories, horror stories, similar to the one that you talked about at the beginning, and then I see situations like mine. We didn't even go to court, thankfully. I mean, we, we settled this thing between the two of us. It, it can be done. It, cooler heads can prevail. No offense to you guys, but if you're going to go into battle, you better be prepared for a long fight and a long financial strain on the entire situation. I, I mean, right? Like if somebody if somebody's fighting for, typically I assume it's always comes down to how much custody can they get of their children and when it gets nasty. But if they're got to go to battle and go to trial, that's going to be costly. Yeah, and you
0: know, in fairness, there is a context in which this occurs that that you know we should bear in mind. I mean, parents are human, right? I mean let let's let's keep that fact in mind. And while they love their kids, they're human, and uh, and often the context is that one of the parties may have had an affair. Typically that's what triggers a divorce. More than I'll tell you, as a divorce lawyer, that's not an ugly rumor. It's a fact. And, and uh while there can be, you know, things where divorce is essential, such as anytime you yeah, I call them marriage killers, you know, if there's drug addiction, if there's physical abuse, you know, there are three or four things that ultimately will ulti- will kill a marriage sooner or later. But if you put those aside, and that's a relatively small percentage of divorces, I think less than five percent. Uh, you're left with cases where the parties it wasn't the paradise that perhaps they imagined uh, but they were they were struggling along and perhaps would have celebrated their 50th anniversary uh, but for one of the parties meeting somebody often in the workplace and then suddenly they start you know entertaining in a in a realistic way that or a serious way that they can they can, have something better. And often that's the trigger. Normally, normally divorce is not a spontaneous phenomenon where somebody just decides, pulls himself up by the bootstraps one morning and says, I'm going to go file for divorce. It, it typically is that there's a third factor. And so when you throw that factor in, um, it, it impacts the ability to settle the case. It impacts custody. It doesn't mean these are bad parents. It means that they're human parents. And and when you have one parent who's moving on, and the other who's being left behind, and the, and they're saying, oh, by the way, I want primary custody of the kids, and uh, and I want, you know, maybe maintenance, or I want the better half of, of our assets, whatever it may be. It's it's not a cocktail that that's prone to amicable cooperation. Uh,
1: I, you know the the, the interesting thing is seeing that you have other lawyers, of course, on your staff. I always find it extremely powerful when there are gender roles involved, as there typically are, of course, in these divorce cases, where your client, Mr. So-and-so, is being represented by a female or multiple female attorneys at your office. Does that have an impact on the court's emotions at all? I don't know. I'd like to think it does. Because you've you got know? a woman, I mean, you've got women on one side, right, saying, hey, mm-hmm. this father deserves at least the same respect that you're treating the mother with. We're women and we're representing this man who we think is actually a, a really qualified and capable and, and honest, hardworking dad. That's got to play a play a role.
0: Well, yeah. And and I, I, I don't know if you know that like 60, last I checked, 66 percent of our attorneys are women. And I don't know why that happens. I mean, our goal is to hire the best lawyer. Uh, but anyway, I d- I'd like to think that that's helpful, that, yeah. that a woman is there. I can't say for sure, uh, but I, I can say confidently it certainly doesn't hurt the
1: case. Do you feel that women, since you do typically represent men, do you yourself, Joe, feel that women are better, uh, are more critical to the to the children? less critical than the father to the children or equally as critical to the children?
0: I think, I think equal. I think anybody who's informed has to say that because I mean, we want to believe that, that we can, that our who and what we are is a blank slate, but I think humanity evolved and we became over many, many years. We can argue about how many millions of years, but we, we can all agree it's millions. And, 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 and there was, you know, there's a reason that you have a, a parent, a mom, and a dad. And uh, and I think humanity was intended to have a mom and a dad.
1: Which roles are, um, generally speaking, I mentioned some stuff earlier. What roles do you see the mom playing that, okay, this is more of the, the, the feminine? And on the contrary, what roles does the dad typically play as the masculine?
0: Well, I mean, let me, let me first say that i don't think that either role is can necessarily has to be in the male or female i mean we see that today i wouldn't have known that i might not have made this observation 30 years ago but i think you can have a nurturing force that might be in the dad and you can have a strong disciplinary force that might be in the mom in other words you've seen this you you know this in couples that you know so i i don't i want to be careful and say that that those two things are essential those two different dimensions of parenting but i don't want to necessarily connect it specifically to guys because historically guys were that way and historically women were largely that way i think that that we have to abandon that because it's not what we see in the world today but i would say both have to be there both dimensions of parenting whether it's the mom or the dad
1: yes do you agree with that i do I do. And, okay. I, and your point is well taken. It's not black and white. Uh, you could have a father who offers that nurture and a mother who's the militant and is going to be the strong and the backbone of the family. It's not gender roles per se, but I do believe there's also some some differences too. I, and, and they're sometimes hard to articulate because it is a blurred line. But I do believe that I think that there's things that a mother can provide to the child that none of us men can. And maybe it's an intangible. Maybe it's a warmth. Maybe it's an affection that's just different. And then on the flip side of it, there's things that the women can't provide that we can as men. And, you know, that could just be a sense of security. I mean, you might have a sense of security with your mom, but if you've got a father in the home, you're going to have an elevated sense of security. I don't care who you are. And I don't care how weak your dad might be. The fact that you have a dad or a male figure in the home as a child, you don't know it, but you're feeling a whole different level of security with that male figure in the home than you would if you're just living by yourself with a female parent and that's it.
0: Yeah. um, And I just, I want to, I think that we have to acknowledge though that we can make generalizations but, but the problem with it is that we know that there are exceptions. We know there are lots of exceptions. And that's the reason I'm leery of generalizations more as I get older than I was as a young man. I could – I could the, the world to me used to be so simple. You know, everything was black and white, uh, good, bad. Um, and now that I've gotten older, I mean, it's gotten more complicated.
1: So if, if um, When you get a phone call – I'm sorry, Joe. When you get a phone call from a potential client that says, hey, I'm in a – I'm in a tough spot. My my wife cheated on me. Uh, your example, the co-workers uh, supposedly is involved. And uh, it looks like things are going south here for us. Um, do you? What, what's your approach? I mean, uh, is, is your approach to go right at it and say, all right, it's time to go to battle and war? Or do you always start with, hey, can we find some common grounds? Deal with the other side. You'll deal with her uh, her attorneys eventually, and try to always get to some form of mutual agreement settlement. I assume that that's the the initial approach.
0: Yeah, it is, and uh, and it's more practical today than it was thirty years ago. Thirty years ago, you know, we uh, we were we we always used the the sub phrase of a domestic litigation firm. Cordell and Cordell is a domestic litigation firm. And what that meant was it was kind of the, the cynical but realistic product of experience that if guys were ambitious for their role with their kids, they probably weren't going to get it voluntarily. Of course, if it's handed to us voluntarily, we enthusiastically take it, but that as a, as a practical matter, didn't happen commonly. Um, and, and so our perspective was more litigation based in the early days for good reason. Um, and for some of the reasons you and I've talked about earlier in this interview, I think now for that to be the starting framework um, is is unnecessary, because I think now there there is potential for settlement that there wasn't years ago. Uh, but there still are biases, and there's still reasons that, that sometimes people need to remind the court, and if necessary, the Court of Appeals, uh, that that the guys is as capable of doing this as as mom, or that mom is as capable of earning a living as dad, mm-hmm. and that, uh, or that dad, if if it is a matter of of maintenance, that dad is as worthy of maintenance as mom would be. I mean, those are things that sometimes require reminding judges and courts of appeal. Uh, but apart from that, yes, I think that that uh, we do more often have the potential for a settlement early on. Uh, than we did 20 years ago
1: yeah if you could uh, somehow keep the ego in check right <laughs> because the ego is the enemy and in, in all these situations it always comes down to that ego it, can, it comes down to the pride
0: yeah yeah and, so and,
1: and yeah let me
0: let me throw this in too uh and this seems a little odd for a divorce lawyer to say this but um maybe because we start out in a christian community serving christians and often Though they were seeing us about marital problems, and though divorce was under discussion, they still wanted, if possible, at least one party, maybe not both, but at least one party, was wanting to save the marriage. And often that would be the party that would come to us. and uh, and there we would we would suggest to them that there are tools by which they can save the marriage and still have all the protection that they would otherwise have. So, for people who the subject of divorce is kind of a sacred or a very you know uh, substantial thing, uh, they want to avoid that at all costs. And a legal separation, for example, depending on the state, uh, in many states is as completely protective as a divorce. Meaning, you divide property, you award custody, you divide pension plans, all those things are done that would otherwise be done. And to, to which somebody who's not religious at all would say, "Well, if it's the same thing, why not just make it a divorce?" And and but. But that the person from a religious background who thinks that divorce, you know, is something that they shouldn't do, uh, then then it's a marvelous thing because it allows them to have the solution they wanted without having to get divorced. So we did a lot of those in the early years, not so much in in recent years.
1: When you have a case, even if it's a contentious one, you guys are, they go to litigation trial. You don't like the other side. You've been working tirelessly for this man who you're representing and you just, you put all your, your passion and you guys win, You whatever winning is, whether it's, it's prime custody, uh, majority custody, sole custody, whatever. And you guys win. Do you walk out of that courtroom and feel any type of sadness and remorse that, wow, these children, we just won for our client, but, there's part of me that feels somewhat sad and feels bad that these children are not going to be exposed to their mother.
0: Um, yeah, somewhat. I have to tell you that, that we align ourselves with, uh, you know, we're guilty of, you know, thinking from our client's perspective and, and, you know, we've, we've taken a side, you know, we're not dispassionate. We're not in the middle we're not even representing the kids, quite frankly. Um, we, you know, we're now we do believe that our client is the best for the kids. Uh, we would have to believe that if you're representing God and trying to get custody. You've got to believe that there's strong evidence. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it's probably one of the failings of the domestic relations bar is that you do something so much every day that, it's difficult to view it with fresh eyes Mm. and you get so aligned with your client and you know, you so wanting what your client wants and you do lose objectivity. There's no question you lose objectivity. I think that to some extent that can serve your client. If it doesn't go too far, if you lose too much objectivity, you lose your case. So, um, I, I can't say to you that I've regularly had that thought. I can certainly say to you, I've, I often, I should say often regularly. Yes, but not, I wouldn't say that it's a typical case, right?
1: That's for the younger guys, the, the, the fresh guys, they come in all emotional. Oh, this is tough. I feel bad over the course of time. Don't worry. You'll become numb guys. Don't, don't worry. You'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll get used to this feeling. It's, it's
0: uh, yeah, my daughter's in medical school and she, uh, she had a patient come in through emergency. She's done a ro- rotation through emergency room. She was recently. And uh, and she she had this patient who came in and was visiting with her and everything and was dead because the na- nature of the illness uh, or the, the injury was dead hours later because they had to do an emergency surgery. But Elizabeth was just very upset and cried. So I think it's a little bit of the same thing is, you do get a little hardened over time, and and you know that's a survival uh, t- technique too. I guess it just is. to hang. It's a tightrope
1: you're walking because if you're not too, if you're too soft, like you said, you're not going to advocate properly for your client. So it's 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 a tightrope. There's no doubt about it. Um, so Cordell Law, talk a little bit. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Um, where can people find you online social media website etc and and the type of clients that again we've i mean people know but who are the type of people that should be reaching out to you guys
0: uh we uh we focus on serving men in divorce uh much of it is custody battles that kind of is where we cut our teeth but in the last decade or so we find a larger percentage of our cases are guys who are older which means it's more about assets Uh, guys getting divorced, uh, above 40, uh, is often not about custody. Often it's about, uh, assets, especially when it's 50 or 60, but, uh, under 40, generally there's no assets to speak of. There may be maintenance issues, but often there's, there's custody. Uh, and that's, that's what brings our client in. So, uh, so yeah, we, we are passionate about what we do. We're the largest domestic relations firm, I'm sure in the United States, uh, we have offices in the UK. Um, we're in probably 70 or so cities and uh, they can find Cordell & Cordell online and there's a good chance we have an office near you.
1: Nice. And we'll link up your website URL, guys. Click it in the, the link in the show notes if you want to learn more about Joe uh, Joe and his firm. Two final questions for you. I think fairly straightforward and hopefully very simple for you to answer. First one what do you like least about your profession
0: um i guess i like least about the fact that the lawyers tend to have a adversarial relationship it's you know you go to work every day and in many fields your work your coworkers you know there's a pleasant relationship or your fellow people in your careers doctors engineers go down the list but divorce lawyers more than lawyers generally tend to have adversarial relationships that spill over. And uh, it's it's not a real healthy environment for anybody uh, long term, but uh, it's the nature of what we do.
1: Flip side of the coin, what do you enjoy most about your profession?
0: Um, I enjoy the fact, and I've argued this to one, I have a daughter who's gone to law school and she's clerking for a federal judge now. So I've argued to her that, that, that the merits of domestic relations law, and that's that, you know, it's the, it's the single, single practice area in which you play such an important role in your client's life. There's no analogy to it. Even criminal law is not an analogy to it. Um, When, when you're a divorce lawyer, you're representing a client with respect to everything in the world that's of value to them. Everything, children, property, career, everything, and there's no counterpart to it. Um, and if you like having that responsibility and like being able to be the bearer of good news, then it makes it a marvelous profession. And and that's what I argue to my daughter that that she should. Join Cordell and Cordell. We'll see if that ever happens.
1: (laughs) She's got an in for sure. Hey, Joe, thank you very much. Uh, Continued success to you and everyone at your firm. and, And thank you for the good work you're doing.
0: Thank you, Nate. Thanks for having me on.